You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Gunja Gargeshwari, who works as the Chief Revenue Officer at Bright Data, which is a data collection and internet portals company with an estimated 450 employees founded in 2014. Gunja has had roles with Zendesk, Amazon, Oracle, and more. On this week's episode, we talk about how is artificial intelligence impacting data? Are companies really utilizing internal data? What are some good causes for use of public data? What does a chief revenue officer do? And the story of the first $1 billion deal at Amazon. This and much more on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, just to let everyone know, we tried using lapel microphones for this recording. There's a little bit of rustling with clothes and movement, but the content is absolutely amazing. So we know you're going to get a ton out of this episode. And with that, let's begin. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Welcome to this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. I'm very excited for this week. We have Gunja Gargeshwari, who, well, he's got some stories for you, his journeys, his background. I did a lot of research going to this interview, and I know everyone here is going to love it. So let's just start. Gunja, can you tell us a little bit about your career, about your background up until this point? Thank you very much. Yeah, Victor, I've been lucky to work at some companies during their growth phase and during the phase that they actually went from being companies which had a solid product to being household name. So my career spans over 25 years and I started my career at Oracle and then I was at AWS after that during the formative years of AWS when we really got to build out the digital native segment which includes a lot of the marquee names that you see today in the market. And then after that I was at Zendesk building out their platform business and really helping them expand into the enterprise segment. And now I'm at Bright Data common thread, Sean, in all of these things is always been lucky to have the opportunity to work within these companies to build businesses from scratch, whether it was building the financial and retail segments at Oracle, whether it was building the digital native segment at AWS, and again, building the platform business at Zendesk, and now building bright data into the future of being a leader in the data provider, web data provider space is really where the fun has been. So what's really interesting there is you know, Oracle, AWS, that is, these are massive companies. And you were with them as they grew. For our audience, a lot of our audience is entrepreneurs, investors in early stage companies. They might not have that experience in working at one of these companies that you hear about in the news every day. What insights in that can you kind of share with the difference maybe, or your experience with working at these monstrous companies from, I mean, you weren't there at day one, but you were there pretty early for some of them and really just growing them and going through their exponential growth. There's a common theme across those when you look at companies going through that growth phase, right? So each company has a different approach to growth, but the common theme is they're all looking at how they can constantly innovate. So that focus on innovation, that focus on how you incubate new ideas and new products, 
and how you build an ecosystem around it, whether it's Oracle did it in multiple different ways, whether it's through, I mean, if you look at recently, they even acquired Cerner for their healthcare business, right? So we did it through a series of acquisitions. How do you bring that in, integrate that into your core business and really drive that innovation engine to drive more value? AWS was all homegrown innovation. It is always looking at building product first and then building with the customer in mind and taking that to market, right? And then similar at Zendesk. So the common thread there, which I think the entrepreneurs can really rely upon, is that incubation mechanism of how these companies do this is very similar to how you would do it. So it's a startup within a bigger ecosystem, if you want to look at it that way. And the companies which are able to do that well are the ones that have become companies which are able to achieve that growth. So you really have to have a startup mindset within that big company for you to be able to and foster that mindset. And that's what helps you keep growing. For career choice, how are you able to pick these winners? I mean, every company you're at, they just kept going up when you were there. There wasn't, it didn't seem, at least from my research, that you entered any down periods for these companies. That How did you go about deciding just to give I mean, right now, there's a lot of people looking for where are they going to go next? Where is the opportunity? So my approach to this has always been customer first. When you think about when you go to the customer, you, you, you're obviously talking about your product, but I highly encourage you to really talk about the customer's business. Understand what their challenges are from a business perspective. Understand where the gaps lie. It kind of tells you where the opportunities are for the future. So when I meet a customer or when I'm talking to my customer base, I'm not just talking about what we can do for them as a product. I'm trying to understand their business constantly, right? Companies which wanted to scale, I mean, we had the whole dot-com boom in 2000 and there's a lot of companies that came up and went away. But one of the major region, reasons that people didn't understand a lot of these companies couldn't scale was because the sheer cost of infrastructure. So when I was talking to those customers, you were listening to these customers, they wanted to scale, but their cost was so high, their fixed costs were so high, it was hard for them to build businesses from it. So later when Amazon came along and AWS was expanding, and when I looked at that market, I realized it was solving that pain. That cloud was gonna become real with what AWS was gonna do. It was gonna solve those problems. So if you look at, how many food delivery companies, for instance, went out of business in the 2000s? They all started. They couldn't scale. They couldn't really do anything to take over the market at a rapid pace because they couldn't scale their infrastructure fast enough. It was too expensive for them to do, operate their business. And having a cloud infrastructure as part of your base helped you to do that cost effectively, helped you to do that on demand, helped you to build a business profitably. And if you look at it today, similar businesses are thriving. The DoorDashes of the world are thriving. Right? So they're all built on the right platform. So constantly listening to your, your customers kind of tells you what the business gaps are. We weren't selling infrastructure from Oracle. We were selling business applications, but the customers would talk about these unique customers that e-commerce space would talk about their challenges of how expensive it's for them to run their infrastructure. So later you kind of retain that information and you know where the gaps are. So constantly you listen for opportunities like that and kind of register that. So I always encourage people to understand your full business of your customer, not just what you're taking to market. And you were listening to the customer, seeing what they were wanting, and then saw, okay, which company is solving this problem? That's the company I'm going to go to next in my career? Yeah. And you got to do it constantly. So it took a few years for AWS to come around and stuff, right? 
but you got to constantly be listening and then you kind of register what are the con- consistent pain points. And then when you see businesses that come by that can solve those gaps, then you know that those are the right bets. It's super interesting that you remind me of a, the a past interview where we interviewed the first person hired for sales at Salesforce. And he was doing on-prem software solutions. And he said he opened the newspaper and heard about this company that just raised $2 million and that they were solving the sales solution in the cloud and went, wait a second, what is this? This is, this is the problem my customers have been telling me about and they're solving it. He flew to New York to the Silicon Valley for the interview, got the job, but he was listening to his client's pain point and then saw a company solving it. And then, well, there's, it's very interesting what you said right there. Once you're in one of these companies, going back to the audience, most people that I listen, teams, you know, relatively small, how do you go about those internal politics, surviving that as these companies are rapidly growing with everyone? I don't want to refer to Game of Thrones, but that's the mindset I see where people want to be in that iron throne and will claw over anyone to get there. Going back to what I said, right? So if you look at what I've done, it's really followed that innovation path within these companies. That is very much like running your own startup. That's no different. You're just within the infrastructure of a bigger company. So there are certain things that do help. But for the most part, you still have to have a solid business case. You still have to get your lighthouse customers. You got to prove that you can generate revenue from the model. You only get investment when you show revenue. So all of the things that you do as an entrepreneur in a startup, you have to do the exact same things inside the company. You've got, you, you're kind of living on the edge because to your point, if you can't show that the business model works, there is always, because there is an existing business, there is always other places the company can invest, right? So you're constantly fighting for that investment dollar. So you got to kind of put on your entrepreneur hat and live that startup life within the big company. I think the mistake, if you, which sometimes happens, is people feel too comfortable being inside the big company and they don't put on that entrepreneur hat and they feel they have a longer runway, then you probably won't succeed. It's you got to feel the same living on the edge kind of thing that you do when you're an entrepreneur saying you wake up every day going, am I going to survive the next quarter? Am I going to survive the next 30 days? And as long as you have that kind of a mindset, it works really well. Now, I won't be, there are a few advantages to being in the bigger company, right? So your basic systems are in place. You've got your marketing systems in place. You've got your uh, operation systems in place. So a lot of that infrastructure is kind of lent to you. You do have a very organized way of going about doing things, and you don't have to struggle as much as you do on those aspects, like when you're a startup. But apart from that, from a product, from a customer, from a revenue perspective, it's the exact same journey. So as long as you have that hat on, you'll succeed. And in these companies, how does one build out their enterprise discount model? You had experience with that. Sales is this black box no one really knows about. Can you share some, shed some light on that? Yeah, so it's always... And maybe even start with our eyes who might not know, what is an enterprise discount model to even start? So that is, that's actually a good way to start. It was kind of where I was going to go. So a lot of times companies use a discounting model or try to think of a discounting model because they want to basically 
increase their velocity of sales. Discounting is a mechanism that they put in place to say, well, let's see if we can put in a model where customers basically will sign on, right? Whereas a true enterprise discount model is, should always be geared towards getting a customer all in on the products that you sell. They have to adopt your full value proposition. So you build an enterprise discount. You don't build an enterprise discount model to push individual products. You build an enterprise discount model really because you have a broader value proposition you can take to the customer. And whether it's the enterprise license agreement framework that Oracle uses, or whether it's the AWS enterprise discount program concept, they all have the same thing. You can go to AWS today and you can buy compute, storage, everything, and their discounts are published for everybody. You and me can go buy it. There's no difference in discount when you buy individual products. You can go commit to a year of a product and the discount's right there and that's how you purchase it. What an enterprise discount model really does is it gives you a mechanism and an incentive to say if you adopt a broader range of products and if you actually have the full value proposition, it's an incentive for you to try more and realize more value from it. So the principle always has to be that you want to deliver more value to the customer and the model, the enterprise discount model has to enable you to do that, right? It should never be, I want to push product X. So I'm going to really go and say, well, if you buy these three products, I'll give you the fourth one for free, which is how a lot of people try to do it. And that simply doesn't work. It sits there as shelfware. It's classic shelfware. So you really want to have that principle in mind when you build an enterprise discount model is how do you deliver more value to the customer? How do you build it as an incentive model where the customer can use a broader range of products from you because they get better value? Staying on the topic of sales, how should teams think of pushing that new product or if there is that encouragement from above saying, hey, we want everyone to go towards this and it ends up, you know, that shelf life product. How should the sales team, how should the conversations go around that or creating these sales channels? Any insights there? I've always viewed our sales teams as being trusted advisors to the customer. I think the most successful salespeople kind of fit that mold, especially in the enterprise segment, but in most segments they do, right? So when you go into a customer, if you really understand the full value of their footprint and the full solution that they're trying to build, and you're always thinking about how you can make that better for them, and you're a trusted advisor, you're not going in there saying, adopt this now from a short-term perspective, but you're willing to build with them for the long term then I think you're always going to get what you need out of that. AWS is a prime example of that. When you go in, we've been, we started our database service. People had database services. It wasn't something new we were bringing to market. But we were bringing a different perspective to it. We were bringing a cloud perspective to it. But to adopt that, you really had to understand how to use a database in the cloud. Most people were having it on-prem. They weren't used to using a database that was cloud-based, and their architecture had to fundamentally change. So having the architecture services to a company with that, leading with those discussions to say, how does that architecture look like in the future? Building a roadmap, not having them adopt immediately, but figuring out over a continuum of 12 to 24 to 36 months, how do you actually realize that, that roadmap and staying with them through the journey to make sure they realize that roadmap. That is very important from that perspective. When you're pushing a new product or when you're trying to get something out into the market, it's important for you to stay with the customer on their journey because it's not instantaneous. Do you think a lot of companies lack or fault on that staying with the company through that journey? 
Absolutely. I think a lot of companies look at a new product as a transactional sale, and then they leave the implementation and they kind of transfer the adoption curve to the customer. I think it's a partnership more than anything else with when you're bringing in products, and you need to stay with the customer on their journey. And whether you do that, with the, and your sales reps are your quarterback, you're going back to your original question, they've got to keep the journey together. Whether they do it with in-house professional services or partners or with the customer's own team, staying connected through the journey, making sure that it's adopted and they're realizing the value is really the differentiator. For the salesperson that going through the customer's journey with the client, when there's ups and downs, they, for example, now a lot of, some companies might be struggling, there could be some downs. How much flexibility should you allow your sales rep with things, with that client to keep them engaged? Depend on macro events happening. It's staying engaged when you, is not as hard as people think it is, right? It's staying in touch with your customer. It's making sure that you understand where they're going and kind of adjusting with them on those ups and downs that they're going through, right? It's, it is really not that hard. And as people imagine, it's, if you have a cadence that you develop for an account, and I'm a big believer that sales, one of the keys to sales success is discipline. So when you develop a cadence, you have your QBRs scheduled with your customer joint QBRs. You've got your solution reviews scheduled. You've got your yearly enterprise visits where you bring them in to talk to your team and align roadmaps. If you have a cadence established with your customer and you're able to stick to that cadence with discipline, it's actually very easy for you to stay in touch and make sure that you're able to stay with them with the ups and downs in their journey. So it's not as hard as people think it is. And going to one of the moments in your career, can you share with us the first billion dollar deal for Amazon? Yes, that was a very proud moment. And it kind of ties into the previous question that you asked, right? So, so the company was, when they started, they were using both app AWS and a competitive provider. And they decided to go with the competitive provider for different reasons and the price being a big factor in it, right? But we stayed in touch. There were a few products that we brought to the table that was relevant to the customer. The spend, just to give you a sense of scale, Ours was sub $2 million maybe in spend a year. And they were spending close to a billion dollars over five years with the other vendors, about 200 million. So it was a magnitude of 100x magnitude, right? But we stayed in touch with the customer for the products they were using from us. We basically made sure we were continuing to deliver value. We continued to run our cadences. We didn't walk away saying, this is not going to be something that's makes sense for us to your point, right? From a perspective of comparatively, we weren't, we, many companies wouldn't have paid attention the way we did. And so that customer obsession was super important to stay with the customer. The second thing was to think big, no matter that we were, they were only spending a fraction with us. Whenever we had a conversation with them, we addressed the full solution. We always continually gave them the messaging to say, what is the complete set of products you can use from us? So just before their IPO, when they were working on their IPO, they decided that they want to have a multi-cloud strategy. And they came to us and we basically did our first billion dollar deal. We went from that sub $2 million spend to them committing a billion dollars over five years with us. 
So thinking big and customer obsession, which are core principles at Amazon, if you look at it, they really work if you stick with them. And always having that broader solution conversation of what you can solve, even though the customer might be using a small portion, being aware of where they're going from a roadmap perspective, being connected to that helps a lot. Going back to the whole ecosystem of a big company, when you're there at these companies, launching a product within the big corporation, how does one go about launching being that entrepreneur in a company? Being an entrepreneur in a company is it's not easy. It's hard. And I've been lucky because you got to find the right champion inside those companies who basically can sponsor you and can be part of that story. Look, it's different in different companies. If you look at AWS and Amazon in general, it's got an inherent mechanism built in for that innovation. All the way down to the rep level, everybody writes a monthly business review, which does get reviewed. There are opportunities identified and people are given the capability to experiment and to grow and to try new things out. In other places like the oracles of the world, you really align with a key sponsor who believes in your message and then you're going to have to work your way through it. It's not unlike you pitching to a certain angel investor or a VC who's going to go in with you. The easiest way to do it, like I said before, is for you to really find some lighthouse customers and really use that customer story to promote what you're trying to do internally. That makes it easier. So that would be your first milestone would be to find that custom lighthouse customer who's willing to go in with you. Then it's an easier battle to find. And let's move now towards kind of what you're working on now. One first, give us a little background of the company and that, but the title itself, it's the mystery to some people. Could you elaborate a little bit more on the CRO, what a CRO is, the title, everything? That's a very good question. So Bright Data, right? So Bright Data is, is the company I'm at right now. Bright, look, at the end of the day, if you look at the data landscape, there is a million gigabytes of data created every second in the public internet, every second. And that is the biggest database that exists of information in the world. So if you are a business, you are an individual, it doesn't matter. Everybody can, should be able to access that information. Our objective is that everybody should be able to access that information in a meaningful way and be able to use it for their business, for their personal use, for anything that they want. This is the most, this is the biggest library of information that's available to you today, right? And it's real time, which if you look at traditionally the history of knowledge, it's never been real time. Somebody writes a book, you read it later. Somebody posts something, you look at it later. It's, this is real time. It's real time events. It's real time information. So. Bright Data, our mission is to bring that information to everybody around the world and, I, and for every single purpose that you want to use it. And that's really where, what we stand for. Coming to your question on the CRO title, the way I view it is very simple, right? Uh, traditionally, companies, if you look at it, will say, well, I've got somebody heading my sales team. And you go out and you sell. But you actually look at all the ways in which you can generate revenue for a company, partnerships, alliances, direct sales, indirect sales, channels. Revenue really encompasses, and it's also organic product-led growth. Revenue encompasses a lot of different mechanisms today. In the modern age company, it's not a single mechanism that drives revenue. So in my view, this role is called chief revenue officer because you really are not thinking unilaterally about just sales. 
from a single direct channel perspective. You own all of the different kind of mechanisms that are required to generate revenue from the company. So you're working with product to build effective and marketing to build effective product-led growth mechanisms. You're looking at alliances and channels. You're looking at partners and people who can do resale revenue. You're looking at every single one. So you're looking at ISV market, people who build using our technology, they build solutions, and that gives us the extra reach to go into the market. So you're, you're planning for all of those different mechanisms, and they're all distinct mechanisms that you have to plan for, and that really becomes your job when you head all of revenue. When should a company either bring in, or when should a chief, op- chief revenue officer have that role in a company? A round, B round, C round, when they're public? When, when does that position get filled? I think, uh, I think it's important to have a sales mindset from day one, but from a practical perspective, I think you usually start with product-led growth. And that is typical, your typical companies start with product-led growth. And when that gets to a point where you know that you've got good product market fit and you want to start expanding into other segments, and then you want to have a broader approach to go to market. So I would say that is when you start looking for a chief revenue officer in most cases. There are a few exceptions. There are companies, if you take Databricks, for instance, or if you take ThoughtSpot and some of these companies, they started with an enterprise-first approach to market. Their product was built for the enterprise. In some of those companies, you probably need it much earlier than if you are going with your traditional um, approach of you're getting in, you're putting out a product, you're driving product-led growth, people are coming to you, and then when you start scaling, you really need the chief revenue officer. So Maybe it typically kicks in between your Series A and Series B is probably ideal if you can do it the right way, but anything post-Series B, you definitely will need one. Going back to something you mentioned earlier about just the size of data that's being created right now everywhere, what are the issues with the data? I'm just wondering, I mean, are people having problems when they're purchasing it from this person or that person? Or tell us a little bit more about the data, the importance, the issues that are coming up? So data collection seems extremely simple on the surface. But it's, and the reason being that there's a few things that go on when you try and collect data, right? One, the places you collect data from are in a constant state of flux. People change their websites, people change the way they post information, technologies change of how they're building their applications. All of these things change. And also people want their websites to be secure. They don't want them to, to be attacked. So there's constant improvements that they put in place for to prevent people from having access to their website, which can be harmful, right? So you're going to have to constantly update your methodologies for collecting this data. So starting with that end of the spectrum, just the collection of data itself, right, is a is an ever-changing landscape. And what we do very well with our product set is we have built the inherent mechanisms so that we stay up to date with what's going on in the market. Our IDE and our platform is always up to date so that you can do that very easily and you don't run into those roadblocks and can do it consistently with a very high success rate. So that's the first thing is how successful are you at collecting data? The second is the quality of the data itself when you collect data, right? To make sure that your data is of high quality. And what that means is that you're actually collecting the data that you want. If you want to go somewhere and collect 
price information and you return everything, but you don't actually return the price information, then it's kind of useless to the person who's consuming it, right? You can give them the item, but without the price, they don't know what it is. Without the location, they don't know what it is. We go down to zip code level when you're able to get data, right? So the preciseness and the richness of information, how deep you're able to go within the target websites to be able to collect the data, how granular can you connect the data, makes it more valuable, right? So that's the second piece. And the third piece, which is not fully solved yet, is that people also want to make sure that it's verified data. That is another challenge that we are working on right now, is to make sure like financial services firms want to trust the data, right? If you are an investment banking firm that says, I'm going to use this data to make some critical decisions, the data better be good, and the data better be from a trusted source, and because otherwise it's going to lead you in the wrong side. So all of these things make the data collection landscape complex. And our tool set and our platform really solves for all of that. And additionally, if you don't want to do it yourself, we also offer the services where we do it for you. So that we take the heavy lifting so you can actually get the output of the data and plug it into your internal processes that you're building for intelligence based on that data. We also, Sean, have recently acquired a company called Bright Insights. And we are in the process of building out actual insights as well. And we want it to be very specialized, vertical-based insights. We're starting with one domain at a time. Right now, it's in the retail domain, and it's focused on certain categories, but category-level intelligence. So we are going to expand into that as well. So maybe we can even give you some of the insights that you can plug in directly and not just the data. There's one thing that caught my attention in what you just said there, getting data from a trusted source. Now, how do you know the data from the trusted source is clean, is tagged, is quality, is good data? So we... Part of it is how much data you actually collect. Part of it is also we collect these data sets and make it available for you as pre-collected data sets, right? So we make sure that we collect it from the sources. We make sure that the quality control is there on our end. And you can, for example, you can go to our website today and buy a LinkedIn data set. So we've made sure that is all there and all of the public profiles in LinkedIn are collected and verified and being posted up there. So that's part of what the value we bring to the table. Now, going back to companies you've worked at in the past and now building out a marketplace, how important is it to have others there as well building it out? Super important. So there's two different ways that at Bright Data that that helps us, right? You've got companies that use our data collection platform and they collect data for very specific verticalized purposes and they have, they're what we call as ISV. So they're super important to us because they user platform, but they are providing value-add services on top. So every customer they reach is a customer of ours, right? On the other hand, there's a lot of companies that use our technology and they collect the data. They want to make the data sets available to a larger group of people. They post it on our marketplace. Today, you can buy third-party marketplace data on our uh, website for multiple different targets that we may not have scraped ourselves or gotten that data ourselves, but it's been collected by various different companies using our infrastructure and we allow them the capability of selling those data sets and for our customers it's great right because they come in and they get access to this whole set of data sets that everybody is building for them so the more that we can put on the marketplace the richer our ecosystem becomes and more of a one-stop shop will become for people to come and get data so super important for us to build that marketplace ecosystem with all this data Going back to 
privacy and concerns, are there any rules or regulations that are being discussed or that anything that keeps you up at night? Frankly, the way we always approached our business is that we always do things ethical, right? So we don't go behind logins. We don't do anything. And there is a lot of requests where people will come in and want you to do things like that. So we don't do that. We only scrape public data. So it's always ethical. We're always transparent about our, the way we do things. When we sign on a customer, we've got a rigorous KYC, which is a know your customer process that we go through with every single customer who comes in. So the way we do our business is really back to that ethical and transparent nature. So, and we are very responsible in the way we collect data and we don't really, we don't really collect data that is harmful in nature or people looking for types of information that we don't really want to be in the business of collecting. So for us, I think the way we do our business, we don't worry about that because we always stay in that public domain. We are a very strong believer that public data should remain public. We work with a lot of nonprofits and other things and people will be surprised. Not only does public data provide you early warnings for things like Silicon Valley Bank, which, by the way, there was a tweet on January 14th and a tweet on Feb- in February, which, and this was financial analysts, which had tweeted saying, Silicon Valley Bank is going to need to raise money. They're in trouble. Customers were following those tweets. And mid-February, there was another tweet from another financial analyst. And then in March, they came out and addressed it on the public market, but they only addressed their shareholders. They never addressed their customers. So if you look at it, Silicon Valley Bank, if they were following their own information on Twitter, could have gotten a very early warning that there's going to be a bank run. So it, it, it's amazing how companies can get insights on what's actually going on, but they don't even have to follow other information, following their own information. So it's really amazing. But then on the pro bono side, and I digress there for a little bit, on the pro bono side, everything from, there are organizations that use us for everything from serious things like child sex trafficking to figuring out illegal movements of goods and things like that, right? So. There's a lot of things that public information can be used for. All of these things, they happen in the public domain. And the information exists. And the early warnings for that, I mean, if you're able to watch it and monitor it, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen in this country, including school shootings and things, right? A lot of this, if you'll read the postscript of it, a lot of these intents, not directly, but indirectly, were available on whether it's social media or whether it's other places, if you were following the right information. So... I think it's super important from that perspective for us to have access to public data. Public data needs to stay public. And beyond business, there is also a bigger application for public data. Speaking of public data and public and Twitter and everything that's happening now, one thing that's everywhere, artificial intelligence. How is data, how is that impacting, whether it's symbiotic or whether it's, when we think of AI, how should we think of the data component. That is the, if AI is a car, that is the fuel. You can't really drive it very far without that. Look, it's just this year, the total amount of data created, copied, if you, all the permutations, combinations is, I think like a 120 zettabytes or something like that, which is three times of what it was in 2019. So AI is, you, you can look at it as, AI is always hungry for data, right? AI is only as good as the data you feed it. It, is, it gets smarter with the data. Even ChatGPT's data ends in 2021. They don't have the latest data to train their large language models. 
we see a huge demand from that perspective of companies with the AI companies which want to consume data. At this point, they want anything that you can give them because that's how they train their models. That's how they get smarter. That's how it gets more accurate, right? And I mean, the whole premise of Bright Data is if you look at it historically, companies which have made data-driven decisions, companies which have really relied upon information to make those decisions are the ones that have done well. And with the AI, they actually get a leg up. Now they can make future-looking decisions. They can make predictive analytic decisions. It's no longer internal data in a rearview mirror that you're looking at, which is your traditional decision-making framework. That is changing today. And AI is a big component of that. And we, are, we consider ourselves from a data perspective as really the fuel for that engine of AI. And the more higher quality and the more fuel you have, the better it is. So. Through this journey of collecting data and analyzing data, have you come across any situations where I mean, cities, we hear about how amazing they are at collecting data but not using it. Businesses themselves, have you come across any situations where maybe people aren't utilizing their internal data? That's a good question. I mean, companies do utilize their internal data, I hope, right? Um, it is really companies, when you look at internal data, it is the external representation of that data, which is customer sentiment, which is things like product adoption. It's things like feedback on where your product's doing. Like if you've got a product on five different marketplaces and you're addressing 20 different geographies with that, are you really looking at those marketplaces to see the trends and data? Are you looking at the reviews in those particular markets? Are you looking at external comments? So are you putting all of the data points together, with just your sales data and your internal data, to really form a full picture? That's the key. And that is still very nascent today. People are not used to doing that. It's disconnected. Your marketing department will look at the external data. It's classic for us. We sell data. Marketing department brings it in. They look at the data. They look at customer sentiment, everything else. They decide how they want to improve their marketing. But they're not looking at it consistently with product. They're not looking consistently with sales. They're not looking at it across their enterprise to say, look, maybe there is an end-to-end change that needs to happen here, and we can capture more of the market. So traditional organizations are siloed. The organizations which benefit the most from data are, are the ones which have good processes for internal collaboration. There's also another thing that you'd mentioned, public data, staying public. Can you go a little bit deeper. Is this an issue that's being discussed right now? Is it, I mean, how important is keeping public data public? Very important to keep public data public. So I think I covered some of the causes. We have a bright initiative, which helps a lot of pro bono companies. We are very proud of that. And hundreds of organizations use us in that for various different social purposes. And the power of what they can do with this for those social purposes comes from public data, right? So public data not being public is, I think, a disservice to everybody. It's like, uh, it's as important as your daily news. And you need to make sure that it stays public and it stays unbiased and it stays in a format that is consumable by everybody. And I think that's, uh, the challenge today is really, there can be selfish motives for people to not keep public data public, to be able to monetize it to be able to restrict access for business purposes. And I think that's where regulation plays a very important role. And we need to make sure that the public portion of it, which is intended to be consumed by everybody, stays that way for any purpose, right? 
And there's always going to be a portion of it which is unique to the business, which is proprietary data, and that's fine, right? But I think that, that keeping public data public, the regulations need to improve, and they need to make sure that it stays that way, especially as we go into the world of AI and everything else. It's, it's super important for it to be that way. And with this whole journey of your career, how have you managed the work-life balance? Any advice for some of our listeners? One of the big topics that comes up on our show over and over again are founders and mental wellness and just being burnt out from the hours, the grind. The, but it's at some way it's needed to get to that top of professions. How have you stayed healthy? Well, there's two kinds of healthy. There's mentally healthy and physically healthy. <laughs> the physical part is harder. <laughs> the mental part is easier, actually. A lot of people talk about this work-life balance. I don't view it that way. It's a continuum of work and life. It is not, it is not two things at two ends of a seesaw that you're trying to balance. And if you view it that way, it becomes very hard because you're constantly prioritizing one over the other. Let it blend into each other. I call it work-life harmony. So you, I don't think that anybody that I know of successfully come, you, you don't walk out of your office and just unplug work. It doesn't work that way. It stays with you and vice versa. If you have a two-year-old who's sick, you're not going to walk into the office and completely forget about the fact that you have a two-year-old who's sick. It doesn't work that way. Those both have to exist in harmony. And you got to make allowances for both at all points, right? Your work has to make an allowance if you have to do something personal. And your personal life sometimes has to make allowances because you've got something that you're trying to get done in a certain period of time at work. So if you think of it as that continuum and as a harmony and you don't try to switch one off and turn the other one on and vice versa, I think it's much easier for you to manage your time rather than trying to look at it as black and white and just trying to switch from one mode to the other constantly, I think that would drive me nuts if I had to do that. Fantastic. And before wrapping up, if there's any information, if people want to follow, if people want to learn more, what's the best way to go about doing that? And also, any key takeaway, any last minute of, hey, from, if there's one thing to take away from this interview, this is what I'd like it to be. So if you want to get more information, I mean, from a bright data perspective, you want to get more information, go to brightdata.com. You can see all the good things we're doing. There's, there's exciting customer testimonials and stuff that you can look at. And it's really a cool place to learn more about what we do. So I encourage everybody to go there and take a look. I think it's a, look, I think we have barely scratched the surface of the value data can bring to both the um, um, industrial and market in terms of companies and also to individuals and to also all of these social causes. So you can educate yourself there and that'll be great if you want to do that. One thing to take away from this interview, I'll, I mean, I think at the end of the day, the one thing that keeps me going in life and is always be in a mode of constant learning. Always keep moving. Don't rest on your laurels. And as long as you stay hungry to learn and as long as that excites you, you're always going to have fun. And the outcomes are going to come no matter what, right? So I would always say, keep that inner child alive, keep that spark alive. Always ask your customer that one extra question to understand more about what they're doing. It might, be not, it might not be related to anything that your company does, but ask it anyway. Be curious, and that'll take you a long way. Fantastic. 
And we'll have all that information in the show notes. So go to thesiliconvalleypodcast.com where you can see our past episodes, current and what we're working on in the future. And for everyone out there, well, I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley Podcast. I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. Connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to have a conversation with anyone. And with that, Richard, this was a fantastic episode. I really want to thank you for taking the time this week to be on the Silicon Valley Podcast. I enjoyed being here. Thank you so much for having me. All right. And for our audience out there, our next interview is going to be on the golf course. So absolutely. (laughs) Any day. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.